Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Right, so for everybody who's just sort of been sitting around and potentially listening to me and Andre uh, babble on for the past like 10 minutes, uh, we are the Dundee Students Free Society. And my name is Kat, the other gentleman you saw was Andre, and tonight, as many of you know, we are currently going to be hosting Dr David Booth, and our topic of conversation is going to be focused on academic freedom and free speech in science. So before we jump right into it, just want to tell you a few things about Dr Booth, just in case we have any other students or other people watching who may not be familiar with who he is. So Dr Booth is a lecturer at, at the University School of Life Sciences and his main focus is in statistics but he also teaches evolutionary biology and science communication. He's had a very interesting experience with science experiences, pardon me, with science communication having been involved in several TV and radio projects with the aim of engaging the general public with science and research. We could talk a lot more about his different, um, the different things that he has done in science over the years, but it's also a good point to make that Dr Booth is a very popular lecturer at the University of Dundee. He teaches extremely effectively, he's got a very unique way of talking to students and passing along information. For me personally and many people that I know, he's really helped us get to grips with statistics, which is typically a field of study that a lot of biology students just, we don't like it, it's got scary numbers in it and stuff. And he helps explain how things work, all the different metrics that we need to know. Um, so essentially, um, I'm just gonna quickly also explain the generalised format for tonight. So we'll have a wee initial statement by Dr Booth and then that will be followed by questions from the audience. We're wanting this event to be more interactive so attendees you are all free to ask your questions yourselves and to join the conversation if you want to. Um, we're just going to ask that you raise your hand first, there should be an option on your screen to do that and wait for us to ask you to turn your mic on. It's just so we can stop things getting a bit chaotic because none of us have run an event where we can allow the attendees to also talk. So we just wanna make sure everything runs smoothly and everybody gets to say their bit. And for those that do decide to turn on their mic, um, just be aware that we do record our events and it does get uploaded onto um, platforms such as YouTube and our podcast. So if you do not want your voice to be recorded, please do not turn your mic on, okay? You can also type stuff in the chat and myself and Andre or any of the other society members will catch it. But having clarified that, I will now leave you with Dr. David Booth um, for his initial statement. Thank you. Initial statement. <laughs> That's interesting. That uh, implies that I've actually planned something. Uh, whereas what you're going to hear for the next uh, 45 minutes is a stream of consciousness. Um, which may or may not get me sacked this time tomorrow. Um, before we start, I want to personally congratulate the people that have started the society. Um, brothers, sisters, friends, enemies, comrades, every one of you. Um, can, can I can I just quickly just ask Sally, who just joined, to turn her camera on and mic, uh, camera off and mic off, please. Uh, if, thank you very much. 
Cool. All right, good. Um, well, on the congratulations part, I have to say um, there aren't many human beings alive that could be said that, that can have on their CV that they were on the same roster as um, uh, Hicks, Dawkins and Hitchens, uh, even if it was the wrong Hitchens. Um, the standard of, of guest has been stratospheric. And um, just for the record, I fully intend to bring the quality down, because as we all know, when you have a discussion with an idiot, they bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. Um, primarily, I think it's interesting because um, when I first became aware that there was something like this going to happen, uh, I saw the the quality of the discourse on Facebook. So um, apologies, I'm just going to make sure this doesn't beep the whole way through it because people might send messages. There we go. Full. Um, the, the, the standard of the rhetoric that I saw on that Facebook post was actually shocking and pleasing in equal measure. So um, we had individuals uh, accusing others of heretical behavior without any any knowledge of what they actually thought, without any knowledge of what they were actually saying. People were making accusations of homophobic, homophobic, uh, transphobic, uh, racist, uh, all sorts of um, pejoratives that I didn't really think fit the uh, the standard of the initial post that was put forward. So I congratulate you for continuing it on through to completion because I think it's been incredibly fruitful. Um, this session itself, I think, is also very timely because um, not 50 miles away from where we're sitting, I assume, right now, which is near Dundee, uh, there's an academic in Edinburgh called Brian Charlesworth who's being um, effectively uh, uh, outed uh, because he uh, had the audacity to defend one of the most influential scientists of the 20th century. Um, he published a piece on the, the life and work of Ronald Fisher, and it was really no holds barred account, I thought. Um, it, it equated his contribution to science, which uh, would easily place him as one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, but it also grounded it in his involvement with the, um, the eugenics movement, um, so let's not let's not beat around the bush here. He was a eugenicist, but he wasn't a eugenicist in the way that you think he was a eugenicist. So most people, when they hear that word, their mind immediately goes to the behavior of the Nazis um, and their unconscionable attempt to eradicate um, um, various groups in Germany during World War II. Um, his concept of eugenics was actually a little bit different. He wanted to improve the the in his words, the moral and mo the mental and moral qualities of the human stock. And the way he proposed to do it was actually to give uh, people uh, money so that they could, you know, reproduce. They could be alleviated of the burden of actually having to work. Uh, at the other end of the the most extreme thing that he proposed, which was actually quite common at the time, uh, was the idea that you would sterilize people who were um, uh, who had severe mental disabilities which I think we could probably agree is uh, a bit unconscionable. Um, but it was it was pretty common uh, um, in that society at that time. And it actually even made it to parliament. It was considered as a as a potential way to uh, improve the overall health of the nation. Um, at no point in his work did he ever uh, mention the idea of race. Um, in fact, um, in the UNESCO uh, 1952 statement on the race concept, which ultimately got hugely bogged down by the uh, the practicalities of making such a definition, because if biologists can't define what a species is, what hope do they have 
of discriminating between people based on their bloodline or lineage. Um, but he said that the uh, a practical international problem is one of uh, learning to share the resources of the planet in an amicable way uh, with people that are materially different from you. And the, the big problem that we actually find is, is that um, well-intentioned efforts are obscured when people don't recognize the real differences that actually exist between us. Um, he was a conservative, but this is Fisher I'm talking about. Um, but even scientists who were left of center, who were quite socialist or socially minded, uh, felt exactly the same way. Although they believed that, um, uh, rightly they believed uh, that the environment played a key role. Um, now in his writings, he never explicitly mentioned um, white Europeans, white supremacy, um, uh, skin color, uh, any geographical region, colonies or slaves. Um, so at no point could you regard him as a racist. And in fact, when people are actually making these accusations, I have to wonder if they've actually read any of his work at all. Um, I think the most heinous thing that he's actually done in the 21st century is impose uh, the analysis of variance on students. Um, well, I think we can all agree that um, uh, that's probably <laughs> the harm that he's the harm that he's done on the mental welfare of uh, level one and level two students is probably much greater than um, than anything else. But it'll be interesting to see how this pans out because um, the, the University of Edinburgh actually, you know, they, they have a statement wherein um, they have to defend an academic's right to freely speak. And these people aren't uh, specifically Charlesworth. They're not um, defending. They're not admonishing. Uh, they're, they presented a, what I thought was a fairly uh, rational account of um, of the, the life and work of Ronald Fisher. Uh, now, I'm not particularly patriotic. I have no interest in flags, flags as they're called in Northern Ireland, not flags, flags. Uh, and we can see what's got going on in Northern Ireland. I don't feel any association to any political party. I don't feel any government fully represents me, and I certainly don't uh, sign up fully to the orthodoxies of any social movement. Um, at best, I could be regarded as a collection of movie quotes. Um, in fact, the idea of any one political party or social movement representing any human being on all counts, uh, to me, smacks of delusion and that that individual is operating on autopilot. Uh, you're allowing someone else to do your thinking for you. Um, in fact, it, the fact that we actually describe ourselves as human beings, I find to be remarkable. That's the most basal state that a human per, a human could be in, a state of being. We are primarily humans thinking and secondarily humans doing. Um, so as such, I don't actually have any heroes in the conventional sense. Um, I do respect people, uh, but they've earned that respect. So I respect the clarity of thought of Richard Dawkins. Uh, I'm, I'm in awe of, uh, I'm sure everyone might have been a little bit in awe whenever they heard him speak uh, a few weeks ago. That, I mean, if I'm 80 years old and I'm still razor sharp, I'll be extremely happy. Uh, I'm stunned by the social irresponsibility of Richard Feynman. I, I think uh, I, I owe a debt um, that the way I behave and perceive and interact with people is entirely down to uh, learning about his life and the way he viewed the world, which was quite askew from everyone else. And probably most notably, I'm indebted to Christopher Hitchens. I think uh, as a as a contrarian, as a devil's advocate, um, and as a defender of freedom and freedom of speech, um, he gives probably one of the greatest and most rounded defenses against absolutism, uh, divine or otherwise, in his book, God is Not Great. 
and I thoroughly recommend that everybody reads it. Absolutism, and that's really the key of it here. Um, it's an anathema to modern thought. Um, the world, as we understand it, is one of a, a statistical uh, set of assemblages in nature. Uh, we don't have any truths, not in the conventional sense. Uh, we have estimates and we have parameters and we have models and we have some measure of confidence on those models and no right-minding scientist, thinker or philosopher uh, could make a statement of absolute truth. And it's the tyrannical nature of the people that are fighting against free speech. Uh, the, the requirement that you sign up to their, uh, their single doctrine, uh, that it's almost a divine right of kings for the 21st century. And I thought we'd gotten over that. I thought we'd evolved. Um, but it's not surprising because as social animals, we are literally made to live in a hierarchy in a little group of a type. We, the, 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 the tenet of lead follower get out of the way is so embedded that you can see it whenever you are around groups of people. There, one will take on the role of a leader by choice or otherwise, and others will follow them. Um, it's a doctrine that's so ingrained into our consciousness that you could almost say it's as, as absolute as the color of your eyes. And every tyrant to date has um, depended on this. Uh, they've wanted you to uh, sign up to that single ideal, that single truth or that single book that codifies their version of the good life. And you only need to listen today in the 21st century to the cries of blasphemy to the, uh, the the wails of the offended who can't believe that other people don't see their way as the way. We haven't come far, uh, I don't think, in the 300,000 years of evolution from our lowly roots. Um, there's a really remarkable piece of evolutionary psychology uh, reported at the Atheist Convention in 2009 by Andy Thompson. And he looked at the fMRI of the brains of religious individuals and he was wanting to see where religiosity came from. And um, it, people were literally envisaging uh, an, an elder or an ancestor in their troop or tribe whenever they thought of what a god was. Um, now, the people that still think this as adults are in a state of arrested development. Um, our brains, <laughs> that our brains are still in a state where they're animalistic in nature and that the glands are too big and that the, uh, the debate gets inflamed so quickly. Uh, just tells us that we're still uh, we still got a long way to go before we can communicate freely with one another without getting horrifically offended. Um, fortunately, there are adults in the room, and the adults in the room are are a little bit more sophisticated. They're able to simultaneously hold two thoughts in their head. They're able to see the left and the right, the up and the down, the the, the black and the white, and they're able to evaluate these statements without feeling aggression uh, without feeling that they uh, that they need to destroy the individual. Um, whenever I was, um, I, I, I don't want people to decide for me what I can and cannot read and what I can and cannot see, providing no individual has been harmed in the production of it. Um, I don't think anyone has the right to tell me what I'm allowed to uh, interact with. Uh, this was something that clicked quite early on in my life whenever I was not much younger than you they played the Terminator on BBC two it was part of a, a series of seminal movies um, Terminator was rated R it was classed as a video nasty and the certification board 
adopted what I thought was quite an elitist policy where they had really this idea in their mind that we as right minded individuals can watch these things and it repulses us. Um, we see violence and it makes us uh, it makes us you know uh, move away from it. But you proles, the rest of you, the, the rest of you that can't think, uh, you see this and it, it inflames you, it spurs you on to violence and social disorder. So we're going to stop you from watching it. Um, and we see an equivalence that, that equivalent level of um, uh, puritanical uh, uh, nature. Uh, in the way that uh, some groups try to control the discourse of other groups today. Um, it's it's interesting that Hitchens uh, wrote that one of the pieces that brought him the most ire in his life was he wrote it a defense piece for, for, for free speech where he said, I need to defend the right of uh, uh, conspiracy theorists and Holocaust deniers and Nazi sympathizers. And we have to allow them to publish their views because a right is ultimately a right. And if you aren't careful to protect those rights, yours will be next. And we can actually see that occurring right now. So we have protests going on. Rightfully, we have protests going on uh, at the authoritarianism of the state. And there's bills going through Parliament to uh, effectively control your capacity to uh, to peacefully uh, uh, congregate, to um, protest these things. Uh, you should be allowed to do that. Um, putatively, this has been aligned with the pandemic, uh, but others seem to think, and I, I kind of agree with them, that it's more a protective measure um, to to insulate the government from the eminent fallout that's going to occur because of the Brexit debacle. Um, so these assaults uh, occur equally on both sides for different reasons, and um, uh, we have to stand up and say we have to stand up and stand against it. Um, now, almost every 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 high impact case or assault on free speech up until this point has involved some form of blasphemy. Um, so uh, Socrates uh, would be one. Um, we go on to Galileo is another. Uh, more recently, we have the uh, Scopes Monkey trial, where it was actually deemed that Charles Darwin's uh, Charles Darwin's work was too profane and immoral uh, for people to see. Um, and it's the the idea that the mob can dictate what is uh, what is the right way to be uh, that I find uh, equally distasteful. Um, now, that said, you are and I we're we're a collection of thoughts and ideas. Um, we have positions on all fronts. I know academics that are supportive of Brexit. I know academics that are against Scottish independence and for it. I know academics and people that are pro and con immigration. I know academics that uh, can hold conspiracy theories in their mind. Um, I know women that uh, uh, don't like abortion, some that do, and men vice versa, people that support the death sentence. You're allowed to hold conflicting collections of thoughts and ideas in your head. Um, it's interesting whenever you see uh, that someone's political leanings can influence all these things. So, for example, I was chatting with a friend the other day and they said they find it strange that if you're a conservative in America, you're pro-life, but you're also pro-death sentence and pro-gun. You're pro-freedom, but very few of them actually you know, do anything with the freedom that they've been given. So your worldview infects every aspect of your life. 
and they co-vary. And your identity is an amalgam of these things. And the idea that any one set of ideals will, or any one group can define everything about your identity, I find uh, a little bit abhorrent. Um, that said, it's clear that we're a social animal. And so we like to belong to little tribes of one type or another. And more often than not, people want to be in the in-group. They want to be around like-minded individuals and they want to hear reinforcing statements. They, they effectively want to place themselves in echo chambers. Um, now, I hate quotes, but um, Mark Twain had a great quote about groups, which was that if you feel that you're on the side of the majority, it's time to reform um, or pause and reflect. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the majority these days because the we have a majority conservative government. But if you go to Twitter, the majority is uh, socialist and left leaning in nature. Uh, if you go to any other, uh, if you go to um, a Tumblr, it's uh, it has a certain slant or leaning. If you find yourself in that location and you find that you're thinking the way everyone else is thinking, then you're in trouble. Um, I tend to defer to a quote from or at least a conversation with that David Attenborough had with um, uh, Laurie Taylor. There was a remarkable series on uh, Sky uh, called uh, I think it was called In, In Conversation. And David Attenborough said uh, something that kind of resonated with me, which was that he has no love of crowds and um, he has no love of the mob. And um, uh, I think he, he he's fearful of the idea that crowds can become rabid very quickly and that any indignation, regardless of how slight or how right, um, can end in violence of one type or another. And you actually see that. I mean, look at the things that have the most effects on people's minds. It's sloganeering. The, the mind of the mob is one that uh, can only deal in 10 syllables. Make America great again. Trans women are women. Brexit means Brexit. Uh, kill the bill. Stop the steal. Uh, we ha we are not simple. We should not be uh, uh, we shouldn't be deconstructed to the point where we can only understand the world in in uh, three word statements. Um, public discourse is also rife with pejoratives and invectives. What's the latest one? The latest one is to call a conservative female who does not like change a Karen. It's it's perfectly acceptable to call someone a Karen. Um, I mean, how long will it take before that becomes a banned word? It's perfectly acceptable to call someone an SJW and mean it in terms of uh, as like a as like an insult. Turf, libtard, fascist, Nazi. It never ends because the, it's, it's much easier to attack the individual than it is to attack the idea. Um, it's also quite cool that we actually have uh, Wikipedia's about these things. So what, what's the law? Um, the law about internet discussions, number one, don't do them. Number one, don't read the comments, but it's um, it's Godwin's law. So in Godwin's law, you can't have a conversation or a discussion on the internet without it resulting in an accusation of someone being a Nazi. I think I've invented a new one, though. Um, I'm not going to unveil it. It's going to be called Booth's law. And I think that every discussion on the internet eventually ends up with an appeal to an Orwellian concept uh, or an ideal. Um, because you're starting to see it these days. Uh, people are accusing other people of double think that we're living in Big Brother. So let's let's make let's make the internet great again, and let's get a Wikipedia article on Booth's law attributable to the exactly this date. Now, public life is not a battle of good and evil. 
left and right privileged and oppressed. It's 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 just not. Um, it's not the zero zero sum game that everyone seems to think it is. Um, we are we are more nuanced and complex than this, and you can't immediately assume that the individual on the other side of the debate is coming to it, or the other side of the argument is coming to it uh, from a malicious place or from a bad place. And this is what we're actually saying. The mob doesn't wait to discuss the idea. The mob immediately goes into attack mode. And if they can't immediately refute the uh, the argument, they'll attack the individual. Um, this so-called idea of cancel or call-out culture, the fact that it's inv invaded into uh, the academic freedom space is uh, particularly unpleasant. Because think about it like this, we have three real domains in civilization. You know, we've got uh, we got the government, we've got the people, and we've got this third space. And the third space is like the public trust and the universities. This is a place that should be relatively free of uh, politics, or at least it, it should be. It should be a place where we can test the ideas that people come up with um, before they go any further. Um, just to give you a feel for the kind of egregious acts that occur, um, not even a month ago, uh, the uh, UN Women um, uh, report uh, came off with an astounding claim uh, based on a relatively small social science survey of about a thousand individuals um, that uh, 29 out of 30 women uh, had suffered some form of sexual assault. And I, I don't doubt the claim. I, I'm sure it's a self-reported thing. I don't doubt that the people that responded to that survey um, had been sexually harassed. But we had a student on a private Instagram account uh, cited the crime statistics, uh, which is an, almost an inversion. So instead of it being 29 out of 30, it's closer to like um, three out of 30, something like that. Um, I don't know the exact number, so don't uh, don't cancel me, please. Um, he then did an off-color joke, which was his mistake, and the Twitterati pounced on him, and they uh, effectively went to town on uh, Queen's University Belfast's Twitter account to make sure that this one student, undergraduate student, would be disciplined. And I suspect in their minds they also wanted him to be ejected, to have his life ruined. So repu reputational destruction is the modus operandi of the people that want to cancel you. Um, so that means whenever you're interacting with someone, if in their bio they've listed as a career choice that um, they're an activist or a campaigner, you've got to watch out because they won't go after your ideas in your head. They'll go after the money in your pocket. They'll try to destroy your life and those around you. Um, for example, uh, Graham Linehan, who was the, um, the writer of Father Ted, The IT Crowd and Black Books, which are seminal comedy works, um, he is he he uh, campaigned for women's body rights in Ireland, namely uh, abortion, the right to have an abortion, uh, because what was happening, I mean, it's it, the whole thing is uh, unconscionable what was going on over there. And uh, he happened to step on the wrong side of the uh, the trans right activist debate and they cancelled him. So he got his Twitter account removed and. Um, uh, uh, they doxed his wife and it was, it's just horrific. The, the incivility of it is horrific. Um, I, I strongly advise if you get a chance to, to look up what's, what went on there because it's, uh, it'll, it'll shock you. In terms of in academia, 
uh, we've seen some very notable interactions with uh, activists and campaigners. Um, the first of which, so whenever I was, whenever I came to university uh, to work at Dundee, I would, I would say I would have classified myself as someone who was woke, very liberal, left-leaning, um, regularly give to charity. Uh, everybody is equal. Every anyone can be trained up to whatever level i mean you you name it i i would i would have said i signed up to it um because i'm you know a fairly chilled out fairly easygoing affable bloke um but then we start to see the uh, invasion of um, french postmodern uh philosophy into the academic space and uh the first one the first time i became aware of it was when jordan peterson uh, reacted to uh, unconscious bias training becoming a mandatory thing uh, at his university. So he produced three little videos. And as a clinical psychologist with a great deal of knowledge on the topic, he stated that, number one, uh, he didn't think you could actually measure unconscious bias, which I agree with, uh, having read the research. Number two, that uh, corporate training likely isn't the most effective way to do it, uh, to to fix people's Un unconscious biases, if indeed they actually exist, and certainly the uh, the most recent research indicates that these bias training programs actually make things a little bit worse. Um, and uh, number three, that it it's an assault on your freedom to have um, a corporation or a charity tell you what and how to think. Um, and it was remarkable that uh, he they attempted to cancel him, which actually ironically the Streisand effect kicked in. And it propelled him to the international stage and has likely made him a multimillionaire. Um, so that one would have been the first. And I've, I've had a, discussions with students about that. And I find it interesting when I hear people talk about, you know, the, the evil Jordan Peterson, when it's apparent that they actually haven't read anything that he's written, um, which is another thing that, that I might get onto, which is that uh, most people are regurgitating information from other sources. I, I heard a really interesting statement today from a friend and they described these uh, uh, buzz facts as ghost statistics. They're just, you know, they just pop up out of nowhere and then suddenly everyone accepts them as being the truth. The second big one, uh, and no, these are mostly in America, but they've now started to happen over here, uh, was Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang. So uh, Evergreen College in uh, near Portland, uh, so leafy, liberal, uh, it looks like an idyllic setting. It has a high proportion of people from un underprivileged backgrounds. So it's, you know, very, very progressive place. Uh, they would have a thing called the day of absence. And the idea behind the day of absence was uh, kids who were not white stayed off campus to show the effect of not having diversity on campus. Um, like, you, you know, you, it's like removing a whole group of you know people from a place and making it less less exciting, less interesting, um, uh, uh, less multicultural. And so they would have this day of absence every year to to show what the effect would be if you decided all of a sudden, let's have a white society. Well, um, a bunch of very, very woke um, left-leaning professors hijacked the day of absence and inverted it and demanded that um, segregation should occur, which I find shocking because it was supposed to be a voluntary thing. And this uh, led to the most remarkable breakdown in order that I've ever seen, where students were taking academics hostage, and um, uh, in, in in true Orwellian style, it was do documented fully on camera. So there's no getting 
there's no getting away from it. If you want to know more about it, there's a, a an ex-student of Evergreen called Benjamin Boyce who fully documented the whole thing. Um, so that was really stunning, and that was like the 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 the, the early onset version of what we're starting to see today in the UK. The idea that uh, you don't have the freedom, and if you do think you have the freedom, that will be um, taken away from you because they'll destroy your reputation and destroy your capacity to uh, to live. Um, and it's not the only one. So if we if we look at the reasons why these things are occurring, it's it's highly likely that it's because of um, a radical socialist political philosophy that came out of uh, uh, Austria and Germany and France in the 70s and 80s. So this is um, the work of people like um, uh, Jacques Derrida and um, Foucault and uh, Marcuse. And um, uh, they, they're effectively assaulted the Enlightenment. It's the only way I can describe it. Um, it's to scramble up the thoughts in your head to the point where you're not sure whether up or down, is down or left is right. And um, uh, these philosophies have actually become very sticky and have uh, invaginated into education and uh, social studies and cultural studies of one type or another because they, they depend entirely on the, the experience of the individual rather than on the, the statistically measured observation of the, of the group. Um, now, the, the rigor of these disciplines has been brought into question more than once. So uh, this is 30 years ago, nearly Alan Sokal, who was a physics professor, uh, published a hoax paper um, in social text. And it was effectively a hodgepodge of buzzwords um, on postmodern cultural studies. And the, the, the most controversial thing about it was, is that it got published. So it was accepted and published, which it called into question, number one, you know, the how rigorous this, this specific type of discipline was. Number two, how influential postmodern philosophy has been on the social science disciplines and number three the the ethics of actually experimenting and the the number four the 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 rigor or the intellectual rigor of the of the journals that um whether they exercised it appropriately you would have thought that would have been enough to fix the issue but no uh 20 years later james Lindsay, peter bogosian and helen pluckrose um, a prominent feminist did the exact same study all over again, and this time they managed to get 20 papers uh, accepted into postmodern journals that are completely um, uh, intellectually impoverished. Uh, just to give you a feel, one of them, they reworded a chapter of Mein Kampf and it was accepted, uh, which I find shocking, absolutely shocking. Um, the interesting thing that comes out of it is how the whole, uh, the whole field progresses itself, and they believe that what's happening uh, is that it's an idea laundry. So one person comes up with a uh, an auto-ethnographic statement of the way the world works, their truth, and this is then reinforced by circularity. So another person cites it, another person cites it, another person cites it. So the poison gets in um, into a capillary and then runs through the veins. Um, now, there's, a, there's an old Yiddish proverb that I think is particularly appropriate, which is that the truth doesn't die it just becomes it comes to live as a beggar and um uh i would tend to agree with people like noam chomsky and david hume um so if you specifically david hume because noam chomsky quotes david hume and he says uh, um if you take any discipline divinity or metaphysics 
and you ask the question, is there any quantitative uh, measurements? Is there any abstract reasoning or any numerical approaches? Is there any experimentation like the development of factor existence? If you don't have any of these things, then you've got to commit it to the commit it to the flames. You've got to burn it because all you're dealing with at that point is illusion and sophistry. And um, the the rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs in a really cool debate on IQ squared um, and Jonathan Hyde stated that you know disciplines need to be sharpened. Iron needs to sharpen iron. It's not sufficient to just keep rabbiting back buzzwords at one another and the hope that eventually this will come true. That said, not all is lost. Um, by any empirical standard or measure, your life is better than the life of your ancestors. We are less enumerate, less illiterate. We're happier. About every day, about 40,000 people are lifted out of poverty. We are less diseased. We're in less pain. When a pandemic occurs, we have a vaccine in under six months. We have fewer wars, smaller nuclear arsenals, longer lifespans, unlimited access to the world's knowledge and education that is free. So if you don't want to go to university, you can go to something like, um, oh, what do you call it? Some, one of the MOOCs that are online. Mortality and childbirth is nearly gone. Palliative care, if you're about to slip off the mortal coil, is at its all time best. And the psychological support for the individual um, is, is remarkable. You've been liberated from drudgery. And in most countries, that's true. And in most countries, we're shifting towards republics and away from um, uh, ownership by birthright, um, which is a, an ironic thing to say, given what's happened today. So uh, God bless you, Prince Philip. You were a, a looper, a bit of a bit of a weird one, but um, respect. Um, now, all of this would not be possible without the Enlightenment. And it's the postmodern assault on the Enlightenment that I find particularly disturbing. We've gone through 290,000 years of uh, abject drudgery. And in the last 500, uh, our species has been elevated to a level that is just stunning. Um, and our understanding of the world that we're in has actually become as stunning uh, as a byproduct. Um, so to that end, I would hate for free speech to go because the freedom to rail against ideas that have become embedded in the, the public consciousness or in people's minds is part of the reason why we're here today. We don't believe that the earth is flat, uh, even though that 2000 years ago it was um, Aristophanes and uh, Karate's uh, Malice who proposed that we were actually on a globe. Um, Regardless of how much I would want to exist on a flat disc on the back of four elephants flying through the universe on a turtle, it's just simply not true. And uh, uh, we know it to be so. So I'm a defender and an advocate of people's right to speak freely on things. And I hope that part of what's going to happen in the next 10 years is that the quality of discourse is going to increase. The emotion in the discourse is going to decrease and that people can actually communicate with one another in a civil fashion. I think that's it. I think I've said my bit. I think I went way over. I shouldn't have spoke. I've spoken for like 30 minutes. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, that's completely fine. It was thoroughly enjoy enjoyable. 
and I think that you're truly very, very eloquent. And you were talking about Christopher Hitchens. I think you're very eloquent as well. Um, so since we don't have any questions from the audience, uh, just to remind you, uh, feel free to put your hand up uh, to ask your questions directly or uh, type them in the chat if you want us to ask it. Um, but we, uh, uh, since we don't have any questions from the audience yet, I'd just like to ask you a question of my own. So do you think, because I always compare what's happening here in the UK with uh, the country I'm from, Portugal, uh, and one thing that is different is that in Portugal we have to have two years of philosophy in school, and in philosophy we're sort of taught how to, how to think, how to contest uh, truths, uh, and how, how to go about life, uh, thinking about subjectivity and so on. Uh, do you think that there's that missing here in the UK, that there needs to be a, a stronger emphasis on philosophy in school? Um, well, the difference is, is that the quality of schooling that people get varies. So I, I was very fortunate um, because I lived in Northern Ireland. I did a thing called the 11 plus and I got graded in the 11 plus at the age of 11, ironically, oddly. Uh, that I was a smart, a smart guy and that I was able to go to a grammar school. And in that grammar school, we actually did uh, divinity and philosophy for four or five years. But I'm, I'm well aware that in other schools, you know, people, the, the schools had to be more pragmatic about what they could and could not teach. Um, do I think philosophy is important? I think it's absolutely fundamental. And you only need to fiddle through the internet on Wikipedia for five or six links before you find yourself in, uh, you know, Greek philosophy. And, uh, you know, you could start off with Katy Perry and end up in philosophy um, if you're careful in which links you click. In terms of your ability to understand the world, um, I think it's absolutely fundamental. Fundamental. Um, I, I pushed very hard for first year students in science and society to be exposed to philosophical ideas. Um, I'm not sure how successful that is, but there's some that are, like for example, in science, we use a thing called null hypothesis testing. And null hypothesis testing in its philosophical roots, uh, you know, it goes back to Karl Popper, the idea that you can never prove a thing, you can only ever falsify a thing. And people get their brains tangled up trying to imagine what that looks like. Or what that would be like uh, and it would be much easier for me if they'd actually had a year's worth of uh, applied philosophy in the interim now when i say philosophy I, the kind of philosophy i'm talking about are uh, daniel dennett and um uh oh god what's he called a really fancy guy oh i've forgotten his name this is terrible oh uh, this is so I, terrible while we think of it i can just say that um I have Bertrand Russell. Oh, sorry. Bertrand I'll, Russell. I'll shut up now. I don't know why the, the brain, my brain just switched off there for a second. And uh, I was thinking of, um, what was I even thinking of? I don't know what I was thinking of. It was weird. Uh, carry on, Andre. Uh, I, I was just going to say that I uh, talked about Karl Popper in school uh, and the way science move forward, uh, moves forward. And that was a moment of enlightenment, enlightenment for me, how things just clicked together in my mind about science and everything and that was truly a great moment and i i wish more people would experience it uh, the problem is that it gets taught in a very strange way so uh, maybe they intentionally teach it that way to put people off it 
But any time it's like there are two things that uh, when you complete a degree and complete a PhD, you come out the other side. The first one is you think, I wish I'd done more philosophy. And the second one is I wish I'd done more mathematics. Uh, if you read uh, Charles Darwin's autobiography, uh, he actually does state that uh, he only did the barest minimum to get through and that that was one of his big regrets, that he hadn't done more maths at school uh, and more maths at university. And all of the great thinkers that I am aware of or that I respect were deeply mathematical. And I guess maths at its core is a, is a type of natural philosophy. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I think it should be mandatory when you come to Dundee that you do a semester of philosophy, probably the semester before you do a semester of stats with me. Oh, so I have a question for you and um, quite a few of us in the society and I have a feeling that there's probably other people watching that would be interested in this one as well. And I'm just wondering if you think that politics is beginning to have an influence over the research that some journals are choosing to publish. And I ask that because I've seen a lot of um, journals publishing what in my absolutely nowhere near expert opinion seems to be more politically motivated than being actually scientific and i wanted to know what your views were on such journals and practices um i i couldn't really speak with any i, I so i've only just recently become an editor on a journal and um i know that they don't have any particular strong leanings left or right so I've seen uh, articles come through that make all kind of all kinds of claims, but um, I don't think so much there's political influence on the academy in terms of what's published, but there would be political influence on what people are allowed to actually do, um, what things they're allowed to research. So, for example, if you say genetics and intelligence immediately people's uh, testicles and ovaries retract up into their body um, or others, whatever the other might be. There might be another. Um, and uh, it, it, it immediately becomes a taboo subject that just cannot be studied. Um, so it, it's clear that there there's there is some kind of association between the two. We know for a fact that they interact because we have the the horrible conservative. Now, I'm neither socialist or conservative. I can see benefits to both. I support neither in any. I would like to see Keir Stammer as a prime minister. I think he'd be amazing. I think he'd be a very efficient prime minister. But I also would like Boris Johnson to stay as like the vice prime minister because I think he's quite entertaining at times. But um, when it comes to the current conservative government, they want to put into place a free speech czar or free speech commissioner. And that actually terrifies me a little bit because They'll be deciding who can and cannot. It's it's such a strange thing that to defend free speech, likely they'll have to trample all over someone else's. And I'm not sure I would trust a right hand man of a conservative uh, fire sale, fireplace salesman uh, to do that job particularly effectively, especially given what happened during the pandemic, where they were handing out money left and right to anyone that was a friend or a donor to the Conservative Party for PPE and God knows what else. So. I know for a fact that occurs. Likewise, the political discourse that occurs in the newspapers is also equally. Um, so, for example, when the pandemic kicked in, 
two months into the pandemic last year, it became apparent to us that the ethnic groups within the UK, there was disproportionate deaths associated with, um, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Alex, about what gets funded. There was a disproportionate effect on the ethnic group. So if you were, and they, they calculated this relative to a white male, I think if you were if you were a black male, you were four times as likely to die of COVID. If you were a white Chinese woman, you were less likely than the male to die. And it was like a graded scale where they ranked all of the ethnic groups in terms of the effect of COVID. And it was based on some preliminary statistics coming out of the hospitals. A researcher who I respect a lot, Winston Morgan, who's uh, uh, down in, is it UCL? It's either UCL or Imperial, I can't remember which. Uh, he's a reader in clinical biochemistry. He took to The Guardian and made the most astounding claim I've ever read in my life. So this is two months into the pandemic. He said that genetics is not the reason why black and ethnic minority people die of COVID. It's structural racism in a complete absence of evidence. And I couldn't believe what it, it was. It was a stunning statement because people were just getting to grips with what was actually going on. There was very little data floating around. Things hadn't been sequenced. They certainly hadn't done any extended trials of individuals to determine what the root cause was of the infection or how the infection progressed. Or it, there was so much uncertainty in the system. And he said very, he made a very clear statement of truth. Now, it turned out whenever the ONS went back to the data later that year, that if you isolate out uh, socioeconomic status, geography, um, uh, sex, all, all sorts of things, you're still left with the same pattern even though the numbers are slightly lower, which means that there is something going on either in the, uh, the, the, the environment and the culture of the people that they're in or in their physiology, in their body, that is actually causing people to be more negatively affected by this horrible disease. Um, and I haven't seen him publish a rebuttal of it, like a, a review or an update to say, actually, I think I might have been wrong in this case. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous to make a statement of truth like that. And People absorbed it, and I heard it regurgitated more than once on TV and on radio uh, as a fact. Um, so that side of it definitely occurs. Alex is absolutely right. It's not so much about what would get published as what would actually get funded or allowed to happen. So there's the potential that you would put in for some study. People would perceive it as being a hot topic that they don't want to be involved with and that you wouldn't get the cash to actually do the research. or even that you try to set up the project in the first place and you apply for ethics and the ethics committee decide that you shouldn't be doing it because that's a quite a novel thing in the last 20 years that you actually have a panel of people checking that you're not being a, a naughty boy girl or respectfully other um so yeah there's there's lots of ways in which the two could potentially interact with one another does that answer your question i've talked for another 10 minutes this is great. well someone <laughs> shut me up I mean, yeah, because one of my big things is I've seen lots of things being published by either prestigious universities in the States or appearing in certain medical journals. And they'll just say random stuff like sex is socially constructed, um, race is socially constructed, ethnicity is socially constructed, everything is socially constructed. And then they'll try to use all this actual biology to try and justify it. Mm. And I'm just sitting there reading it going, what what, what the hell's going on here? What, for the what record, arguing? Yeah. For the record, biologists know that sex is a thing. 
in fact it's recognized as the it's actually we've got a we've got a little subtitle for it it's called the queen of problems for evolutionary biology because we can't explain why sex exists um this is going back to graham bell in the i think the 50s of la of the last century and he stated if you have asexual things because we know they all started off as asexual sexuality has to come from an asexuality state and asexual things reproduce a lot faster than sexual things do so you have this like a is it a, an eight to one ratio at its most extreme of one type outnumbering the other so the the effect of having sex and having sexes has to vastly outweigh the reproductive capacity of the things that just you know split into two um we have definition of what sex is um and that's the i guess that's the critical thing you know so for one of the most interesting things that i ever saw was uh one of my all-time favorite profs as a student and i'm touching my chest because i was so touched by it he debated against some christians a guy called um um oh god why why can i not remember his name i'm friends with him on facebook anyway regardless he was debating uh, uh, uh creationism and uh they got down to a definition of sex and he said it's quite simple females produce large sex cells males produce small sex cells job done and whenever people get into heated debates about these things they're often not using the biological definition of the of what a sex is because if we scratch the surface with living things we end up in weird situations where we don't have big and small sex cells we have equal size sex cells and then you actually do have some kind of system in place whereby one is the male in inverted commas and one is the female in inverted commas so the really uh, weird example of that is uh, flatworms so flatworms have uh, uh, penis fighting like sword fighting contests like bouts of fighting contests to determine which one is going to be which one's the impregnator and which one's the impregnated um yeah and if you put um if you put uh uh so pacific squid if you put them into low light conditions because of their capacity to not recognize males and females anymore they just impregnate anything and the way they do it is they grab some sperm from their armpit i say armpit tentacle pit and they punch it through the mantle of the putative mate because that's you know that's a loving embrace for a for a squid um but when you get to the the more cultural version of what a sex is yeah of course of course there's clearly defined like there's sex roles that people adopt there's gender roles that people adopt but biologists don't really have anything to say about that you know it's it's not hugely of our concern so um and but the problem is that the theses are put forward and they're not put forward in a situation where they can be put to the test iron sharpens iron so if you i can put forward any thesis in this field and uh, providing enough people cite me or quote me it becomes part of the body knowledge without ever actually having to be tested just to give you a feel for what i mean correlation and causation are not equivalent when it comes to people we don't experiment on people believe it or not we've come a long way in the last 100 years we don't tend to experiment on people not really and you can't do experiments where you determine whether or not your skin color affects criminality you can't do experiments where you determine sex affects uh, affects you know can't do controlled trials of these things alex uh, we can look for correlations and i guess we can do longitudinal studies but people will cite correlations as though they are evidence of a thing actually occurring so as an example 
there is a correlation between the color of your skin and whether you're going to be stopped and searched in London. And that's disgraceful. But there's also a correlation between your age and sex and whether you will be stopped and searched whenever I was a kid. So I got my uh, driving license at the age of 17 in Northern Ireland. And if I was out driving in the car, I would be stopped and searched by the police because the perception was that I would be a terrorist. Um, so in, a, in, a, in an environment where violence could occur at any point in time, the police deemed it necessary to stop and search me. Anytime I would travel from Northern Ireland to the UK, I would be searched in the airport. And I don't mean searched as in walking through a scanner. I mean, patted down every time uh, because the perception was is that we were we were coming over here to blow up allied carpets, whatever the hell it was that was going to be blown up that week. Likewise, if we look at the so another correlate, you know, or another ratio at the very least, the prison population is what? 15 to 1 male to female. Is there a correlation there or is there some kind of association there? There probably is. Does that mean that uh, the, crimin the criminal system is biased in such a way that it discriminates men? Probably not. It probably actually turns out that men are a wee bit more violent on average and a wee bit more likely to commit a crime. But you wouldn't say that the system is biased towards putting men in jail in the same way that you might not say that the system is biased to stop and search someone just because of the color of the skin. So these the correlation causation thing, I think they don't really fully get. Uh, and often whenever you see people defending these ideas, they'll spew out statistic after statistic. And you'll say, well, that's fine. That's fine. But these are just correlations. Show me something else. That's like telling me that uh, phones cause brain tumors. It doesn't mean anything to me. Um, and again, I'm talking for 10 minutes at a time. I've got to stop this. Uh, can I can I just quickly ask before uh, we continue? Uh, because we 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 scheduled this to to happen from seven to eight, but would you be fine with staying ten uh, or fifteen more minutes just to get uh, a couple more questions? Because this is quite interesting. Uh, me? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I don't. Okay, it is that of you course, can find or you can. No, I don't mind staying. Oh, okay, just <laughs> Uh, she has raised a really interesting point. She's absolutely right. I, there was an interesting thing that came up that I heard today about the COVID tests whereby, yeah, it's going to cost potentially a couple of hundred quid. And the new system that's being put into place to stop and test, you know, like to test people if they travel. The second test is coming like 10 days after the first, which means that potentially an individual is going to have to stay out of work if they are like exactly as she says, uh, service personnel. Uh, for potentially three weeks. Most people can't afford that. So there's clearly potential for there to be bias in the system on that front. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But you, just because you see bias in the system on that front doesn't mean that you can discount the idea that someone might have a genetic polymorphism, which makes them more prone. Now, the question is, it's not unreasonable to ask the question and it's not unreasonable to look. It's how you treat it after the fact. No one is suggesting that we would sterilize a group of people because they're more likely to die of COVID or transmit COVID. What you would adopt is some kind of you know, social policy whereby you ensure that, you know, make sure you wear your mask, make sure you stay your distance, these sort of things. It's the civilized version of understanding this information rather than the incivil version that we might have gotten in the 20th century. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I'm going to quickly swap the, uh, the theme to something more lighthearted. Uh, Ian asked... 
do you want to write a book on this assault of the uh, on the enlightenment? It sounds like you can bring ideas together, and I think that's great. You should write a book, Doctor uh, Booth, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I think I don't need to hear that. I, I don't need to write that. I absolutely don't need to write that because uh, Peter Bogosian actually wrote a really Peter Bogosian and James Lizzie wrote a really cool book, which was. I think it's called how to have a conversation with anyone, something like that. It's how to have difficult conversations, you know, how to converse with someone who has a different political ideology or a different worldview uh, and come away not hating them and them not hating you. So the people have written much more widely and much more eloquently than I ever could on this subject. Likewise, um, I, I mean, I'm an ignoramus like. I, I I am in a university because it gives me access to knowledge and I learn about the things that I like. And um, I, I never really got into into academia to to, you know, I'm not in, interested in Nobel Prizes and I certainly couldn't conduct research to that standard. I like knowing things. I like learning things. And the, the simple fact that I can go online at any point in the day and just type in an article and use my horrible, you know, single user login to actually get locked. You know where you have to, you know, do your little password and press your little thumbprint and it takes you through the the journal. I love that. That that uh, pleases me greatly. So my contribution would be um, I think my contribution would be pretty, pretty weak all in. And at the moment, I'm actually writing a book with uh, Steve Land on stats. So um, I'm trying to make stats accessible. That's really exciting. I can't wait for that to come out. I yeah. think. Both you and Stephen Land are amazing did you writers. Stephen Land, did you are writing a book? Yes, that's right. That is. It's nearly done as well. So oh, got, that is just that is so perfect. That I have is like uh, have like a half team. chapter left to go on my end, and Steve's got about a half chapter left to go on his end, and. Um, that's so cool. Right, gonna have to buy up every single copy. <laughs> Give it all I, up. All you, of you, don't, you don't need to buy up every copy. What I'm gonna do is make it the required reading for the level two course. Yes, so, yes, yes. Either you'll buy it or the yeah. university will buy it for you. And, uh, <laughs> either way, I'm going to get uh, 10% of 2% of every copy sold. I think, is it 10% of every copy sold or 2%? I can't remember. It's one of the two. So I'll get like enough money for copies every uh, semester. <laughs> will we get no, you've got to pay extra on top. As a thank you for your hard work. I appreciate no, it. No, honestly, do, do you know the thing, the thing that I've really... This year has been a strange year, and the reason why is because, number one, uh, we had to do everything online, which was good and bad in equal measure. I like interacting with you one to one in person. I like, you know, I like us meeting together in a lecture theater. But what I found was the online bit, you could actually have more interaction with people because of the chat windows, because you could hang around for half an hour afterwards and not worry about having to rush off somewhere else. So I, I, the, the thanks that we get as lecturers are the fact that we're around young minds, young thinkers, young people going out and gathering up new ideas and kind of bringing them to you to kind of test them out. Where things fail is when you have people who have been completely indoctrinated. They, they come in with a presupposition about what you are, about the way the world is, and they are absolutely not going to have their mind changed on that matter. Um, about 
four or five so this is just after the jordan peterson thing when pronouns were like i I only became uh tangentially aware of it um we had a uh, a student come through who was uh i think an activist a trans rights activist and um they just took great exception to me you know i'm teaching about you know sex and sex differentiation and sexual reproduction and i have a quite you know light-hearted approach to things i don't take it all hugely seriously and they assumed or uh, must have thought I'm some sort of horrible conservative who wants their very existence to be deleted so they they put in one of the most horrific complaints I've ever seen in my entire life where if if there's an ism or an ist I was accused of it um now this actually precipitated me being sent to unconscious bias training and that's part of the reason why I'm even aware of this stuff right now is because that of that one event forced me to go to one of these uh, indoctrination trainings. Now, don't send me to one of these things because I'll read the research before I go to it. Unlike many people, I'll try to become aware of what the field's all about. So I knew the, the limitations. I knew the weaknesses. I knew that the, the implicit association test actually doesn't test anything, has no retest validity. If you conduct it in a different language, you get a different score. You know, they, there's 101 reasons why this is not measuring bias. I knew that the meta-analyses of these uh, of, of the action, the field is too young and too embryonic to be making the claims that it's making. So I, it actually did exactly what the meta-analysis proposed, which that it would polarize me against the theory and it would make me less susceptible to the idea that I have biases that can be trained out of me. Um, but you've got to take the rough with the smooth. So I don't harbor any ill will to a student who complains and forces me to go on mandated retraining like something out of 1984. I'm actually quite pleased. I've, I've grown and learned and benefited from it. Um, but I'm sincerely hoping that come September, we can all get back together and I can say the horrible things I say in person and they're not <laughs> recorded and online ad nauseum forever. So that is, um, I just want to say that is absolutely like shocking as a student of anatomy that someone would put in a complaint like that but regardless I've got someone else who um, submitted me an anonymous and she's just basically saying that she's felt that the online teaching aspect that we've all had over the last year or so has shown quite a big discrepancy between providing the media that is available to disabled students so she's dyslexic and she's autistic as well and I think she's found that with the availability of having lectures pre-recorded and then that information then being covered again in synchronised sessions has really helped. And well, she's in attention. luck. She's in luck because yeah. that's likely what's going to happen this year. Even if we have the sessions that, yeah. live, it's likely that we're going to use the, the materials from last year are then going to be put online so that you can prepare yourself with them. Um, there are costs, there are benefits and costs to these things, and I think one of the big benefits I would sincerely agree with that is the the ability for someone to go over and did I really hear that word or did is that really what was on the board or you know it's it's a much more rich experience than a PowerPoint in a folder and a link to a paper. Um, so yeah, that I'm I'm uh, I'll I will say one thing: lectures are lectures and they are no substitute for reading. So I didn't, I, the lecture for me as an undergrad was an ephemeral experience where I went in, I got exposed to an idea by someone who was excited about that idea and got me excited about it to the point where 
when I left the lecture theatre, I wanted to know more. What I didn't treat the lecture as was a transmission of information where, right, I'm, I'm sitting, I have my notes in front of me, I have my pen in the standby. Naturally, it's one of the, you know, the four color pens, you know, the, the clicky pens. Um, so I have my clicky pen ready on blue because I would only use red to highlight underneath things and just tell me what I need to know for the exam. So I never treated it like that. Um, and some of the more uh, inspirational lectures that I went to were the ones where I came away a little bit confused, but excited about an idea. Like, did I did I really hear what he said correctly or what she said correctly? That, are they really suggesting that there's such a thing called imprinting? That that the X chromosome is silenced in this way, that it's that there's inverted diseases caused by it as well. Um, I, I actually that really I really got a big kick out of that. And then actually having to go to the library and find out more in a library just uh, made it all the better because it became then like foraging. I was like going back to my uh, ancestral roots. You know, the hunter gatherers moving moving up through northern Europe, you know, find the mammoth, kill the mammoth and eat the mammoth. I would treat ideas the same way. So I, I hope that part of the resources being made available online, you only use it as a supplement for actually reading for yourself. Um, but, yeah, you're in luck because that's what we're going to do. Um, I. I'm going to ask the penultimate penultimate questions uh, question which came through the chat and it's very interesting. Uh, so this person asks, do you think that in schools a philosophy of arguments and debates should be for finding the truth and not trying to make the other side's yields to your view. And I, I, I agree a lot with this because I've been involved with the uh, debating society and I knew, do notice, uh, and it also applies to the wider society, I do notice that there is a, a strong emphasis on winning an argument rather than trying to understand why the other person thinks like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I, I, I just usually discuss and argue because I want to find why the other people think the way they think. Um, so it just confuses me. So, so do you think there should be an emphasis on this? I think the value in debate is not the arguing with someone. It's the any of the, the great debating societies that I've been in. And uh, we had one in my school. Uh, so whenever I was, I don't know what, 14 or 15, uh, you couldn't you couldn't uh, prepare for only one side of the debate. You had to prepare for both. And it would be a coin flip as to which side you got on the day. So you had to be you had to be aware of what the other side might potentially argue back at you. And you had to appreciate that potentially those arguments could be defended. When it comes to science, there's active debates, especially in biology, there's active debates going on today in several different disciplines as to the role of one thing or another. And you can't really argue one side against the other. It's not a case that we can just set up a series of facts and in inverted commas on one side or logical deduction on one side and the converse set on the other side. More often than not, either you can develop an understanding through an experiment, experiment of some type, which will tell you which way things could potentially go, or you're left in a situation where you have conflicting ideas, which ultimately produce identical outcomes. And at that point, you've got no way of distinguishing between the two because, you know, we can't resolve down beyond the level of the observations that we can actually make. So when we think about debates uh, in sciences, it becomes a little bit less relevant because of the way science develops. But I could see how 
certainly for the ethical side of things, I can see how it'd be incredibly valuable. So it would be nice if people would actually debate eugenics, because I actually believe we do eugenics today. We just don't call it eugenics. Um, abortion. Abortion is a form of eugenics. Uh, more often than not, it's used to, exactly as Fisher proposed, increase the overall mental and moral capacity of the population by, uh, you know, kids that potentially are the results of incest or kids that are the result of, you know, that potentially could have uh, quite profound uh, disabilities. I mean, naturally, of course, it's, you know, the, I, I literally have no skin in the game here and I sit exactly in the center of the fence and I'm happy for people to argue about it. But I, I hope you'll agree that we are effectively practicing a form of eugenics by doing it. Um, if it was targeted, then it would definitely be. But um, um, in the interim, it's not. Um, so on the ethical side, definitely I can see that. I could see debate being very valuable indeed. What do you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree uh, a lot with that, and it's it's from a personal point of view because uh, I'm I'm I, I'd say I'm a curious person. So whenever I find someone who thinks in a, in a different way to me, I'm not just trying to. Uh, I don't think that they're wrong. I just think that they think different, and I try to find why they think the way they think. Uh, and that's that's something I think is lacking in in the wider society. The, the the big thing though with science is is that uh, because of the way we progress, we are very good at rejecting bad ideas, and the 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 trail of destruction that we leave in our wake is enormous, and so you know it, there's no such thing as spontaneous generation. There's the the Earth is not flat. The uh you know the 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 Earth uh is moving around the sun and not the other way around. Um, that your blueprint is carried in the chromosomes in your nucleus. The, you know, these things have all been proven by falsifying the other idea. So, you know, they're, they're kept up as the, the kind of the kind of the final statement. Um, so we're, we're remarkably good at that. But the problem is, is that in the wider society, they're not trained for the most part to to be able to distinguish between what is a crackpot theory that we've falsified and what feels like it should be right. And the perfect example of this is homeopathy. Homeopathy, the first ever randomized control trial, proved reasonably conclusively that homeopathy doesn't work. We have uh, government ministers proposing that there be homeopathy wards and wings in uh, hospitals, even though it's demonstrable that it doesn't do anything. So it's not so much for us, it's for the general public. They should become more conversant in the idea of debate and discourse, and they should become more capable to root out good information and be able to distinguish it from bad information in inverted commas. Um, so I think at that end, I would, I would I'm probably lie at that end of the spectrum. Like uh, one in five people in Japan doesn't know how genetics works. Uh, one in two Russians uh, uh, don't know how is it one in five Russians don't know how antibiotics works. You know, there's a whole host of like weird, um, weird little observations you can make about that, like the ignorance of the society. Um, and uh, we're, we're seeing it in real time today. Like I, uh, my guilty pleasure and I have lots, but the guilty pleasure that I'll actually own up to on Zoom being recorded to be put on YouTube is that I like to look at public freakouts and actual public freakouts. And every other actual public freakout is someone 
an anti a lunatic anti-masker. Like, you know, th this is a pandemic. Vaccines don't work. They're going to put a chip in your head. You know, they'll start calling people sheeple because they're literally wearing a mask, you know, to like not breathe in other people's spit, you know, during a, a, a pandemic when one of the primary ways of it being transferred to you is through someone's spit being shot at your face. Um, so the, we're seeing this stuff in real time. And I think if we had a more it, it's it's obvious how uninvolved the whole unevolved the whole population is when the number one video on public freakouts is anti-maskers. That's all I will say. And again, I'm talking for 10 minutes at a time. I've got to shut up. Well, as someone who has had both shots of the Pfizer vaccine, I can tell you right now that you all need to get it because instantaneous 5G connection, sending text messages using my oh mind. Oh, my God. You've all got to, you've got to get in there, right? You've just got to get them. I um, got I got the, uh, the, 21, the Samsung S21 Ultra. And it's not uh -huh. getting 5G on it yet, but yeah, well, I've got 5G in my when mind. I get the vaccine, right? That's when I become the 5G yeah, antenna. That's that how it works. That is when it happens. You just have to, you have a thought and you think, I want to say this to so and so, and yeah. it will instantaneously go to them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I bought this phone not because of 5G. I bought it because they told me I could photograph the moon on it, and you can look at that. That is fantastic. Yeah, but I've got buyer's remorse because that's literally the only thing you can do with it is photograph the moon. Awful. But it was such an attractive thing. Uh huh. I'm such a simple animal. I think we all are in our own ways. So as you're probably fully aware of how our we talks go, um, we like to always ask what we term the final question as the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. And of course, I'm putting it to you. And we would like to know, David Booth, what does free speech mean to you? and Why is it important? I have found that the humour of the world, the world has become more bitter, more puritanical, less humorous. People have become more entrenched. There's no joy and no beauty in a world without free speech. We take the risk, obviously, that there's going to be hate. Of course you do. But in my experience, 90% of the people that I interact with I enjoy interacting with them, even if they have a different set of ideas and ideals. And in fact, the people I enjoy chatting with and debating with the most are the ones who have diametrically opposed ideas and ideals. So for me, it's it's about keeping the world interesting, certainly for me to live in. I want to live in a world where we're free to say things. And obviously, of course, if you're free to say something, that means you're free to be identified as a person who thinks that. Like, I don't want to live in a world where people are thinking one thing in their head and saying something else to your face because they've been told they have to do that. That would that that harks back to early Christian philosophy. You know, the idea that you have to lie to someone's face while simultaneously thinking that God exists uh, because that's acceptable in the doctrine of that religion. Um, I don't want to live in a world where there are safe spaces, where people have little areas that they can go to and be insulated. But I do want to have areas on campus where you can go and play with puppies. I think it's amazing. Like, that's probably one of the most beautiful. Like, yeah, bring in a little dog or a little puppy for people to play with. But don't give them a, a safe space where they can sit and live in an echo chamber. I don't want to live in a world that is 
no platforming where or where no platforming can actually occur because even though I might disagree with Peter Hitchens, I like his style of argumentation and I learn a lot from it. Um, the, the the nature in which or the way in which he he builds an argument to convince people that his ideas are are are, are reasonable. I don't want to live in a world where the only tool in my arsenal is a hammer, and every solution that I see is a nail, or every problem that I see is a nail to be solved by it. Um, and unfortunately, to live in that world, I'm not currently completely aligned with people, strange bedfellows on the left and the right, who actually think talking to one another is a good idea. Um, there was an amazing quote that I was reading in an I'm going to read you one quote, and it actually was a, a critic of uh, it was a critic of uh, critical race theory, a really, really excellent paper, um, it, very balanced as well. So it, it talked about Derek Bell and, and Delgado, the kind of the founders of it. But the, the forward, to the little sort of quotable that they put at the start was this. Uh, One of the subtlest challenges we face is how to re-legitimate the national discussion of racial, ethnic and gender tensions so that we can get past the catch 22 in which merely talking about it is considered an act of war in which not talking about it is complete capitulation to the status quo. Um, and that's what I want. I don't want to live in a world where I've got the safe status quo or where simply uttering a phrase or a word means that immediately someone thinks that I'm a bad actor in the system who wants to uh, dehumanize them or delegitimize them in some way, because I certainly don't. Live and let live. Believe it or not, the Greeks got it right 2000 years ago. The golden rule actually works if you live to it. Um, so that's what, um, that's what free speech means to me. That's that's a great note to to finish this event on, and that's unfortunately all the time we have. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Booth profusely for taking the time to talk to us today, and for his continued support throughout the semester. Uh, it's been great to have you on our events and giving us suggestions and so on. Um, and yeah, it was truly wonderful to have you joining us today. We hope uh, to host more events with you in the future. And we are sure that those will be all audience favorites. Um, <laughs> we'd also like to thank everyone that attended today. It's great to see that there's still interest in the society, despite how busy everyone is with revising. Good, lo good luck with the exams, by the way. Uh, great fun. Yeah, good luck with the exams. Agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and we hope that you enjoyed this format. It's a new experience for us. So we do apologize if there were any issues or imperfections. Uh, we'd also like to say that um, we are open to new members, so if you'd like to join the society, just message our Facebook page. We are a, fa a fairly decent bunch. Uh, we know the rep we have, but we're actually decent people. Uh, we don't want to kill all the Jews and murder all the, the, no. the gays. Fake news, as they like to say. Fake news, exactly. <laughs> Um, as some of you know, this is the last event of the year for us. Today is actually the two-month anniversary of our first talk with Dina Iman. Uh, and it's absolutely unbelievable to look back at these two months and remember all the amazing guests we had. Uh, my personal favorite was Richard Dawkins, but every single one of our speakers was fabulous. How great was Jade? Isn't Which, Jade just the Jade most phenomenal person? Phenomenal. That was so good. I, I was hooked. Absolutely. <laughs> I was bending acrylic tubing. <laughs> the water cooling in the PC and I had Jade on the background. Actually, I had to stop what I was doing to listen to her. That's how interesting she was. Oh, she was absolutely phenomenal. Like, just the way she explained 
so good. Such all clarity. Of the legal, all of the legal clarity bits of communication. And I know next to nothing about sexy. law. And <laughs> you it, you're just like, think things are fitting together. This is making sense. But Absolutely. Richard Dawkins, though, I cannot believe we got to talk to Richard Dawkins. I just hope uh, when the next academic year starts, you get high caliber, high quality guests again. And uh, I sincerely look forward to it. Thank you very much. Uh, so as as I was saying, and as Kat and, and both uh, Dr. Keith said, uh, all our guests are amazing, especially, uh, well, I'm not saying especially, every single one of them was great. Uh, and it's truly been a blast. So we want to thank everyone, attendees, speakers, members of the society uh, who's been a part of this. Uh, and we just want to say that we will be coming back next year, hopefully in person, to continue continue promoting civilized debate and healthy exchange of ideas within the University of Dundee. And I know you said you don't like quotes, Dr. Booth, but uh, I normally end with a quote, so I'm going to end with a quote today. <laughs> uh, today's is from the masterpiece that is Douglas, uh, Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's one of my favorite quotes of the series. Um, he says, it's the, uh, the beginning of, I think, a chapter. It's just a great beginning. He says, in the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. Uh, humans will get angry at anything at all. Anything you do has the potential to trigger anger. So stop thinking about everyone you might anger when you open your mouth and just speak your mind. Uh, another great Douglas Adams quote is, he was con constantly reminded of how startlingly different a place the world was when viewed from a point only three feet to the left. So embrace your uniqueness, embrace your differentness, your specialness and be free. Thank you very much and have a, a very good night.